Well, first, let me just thank the music team and that incredible worship. You know, there's, uh, I don't know if y'all do this, I don't think I'm dying, but whenever I hear a song that I really love, I'm thinking, that's the song I want to be sung at my funeral. And uh, we got two of them today. That first song, the the, uh, Sanctus, was just amazing. And then I don't think I've ever heard Amazing Grace uh, played with such emotion. Thank you so much. It just, I love it for you to pull emotion out of me like that. And I was, I was in tears. So praise God for just our music team. I really appreciate you guys. And I'm still kind of recovered from that. I'm not sure I want to preach right now. I'm just kind of soaking. But when we come to this passage, all right, there we go. I transitioned. Um, coming to this passage, I, I must confess that I found myself surprised uh, by reading it. Maybe you, you, you know what I mean as you heard it read just then. I'm surprised that after such an optimistic evaluation of the church in the previous passage, you know, describing the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth, that we are immediately given a description of a church that seems to be besaged by really, and the description there is by demonic intrusion. It doesn't make sense. I thought the church was the pillar and buttress of the truth. I, I thought it was that which... Uh, of course, not even the, the, the Satan can overturn it. But how is it then that Paul is concerned for the church that it is being demon-possessed, if you will? And yes, given the mention of demons and demonic activity, I find myself startled yet again. Maybe you did too. Uh, somehow when I come across a passage in Scripture that speaks of demons and demonic activity, I... I'm always a bit shocked, and I kind of wonder why. I mean, even in my classic Christian orthodoxy, I find myself not wanting to talk about such a seemingly archaic idea or notion of demonology. That just feels so mythological, doesn't it? It almost feels vulgar in a way that I wouldn't expect in Scripture, not quite dignified the way that I would hope that the Scriptures would be. But even more to my point, and while expecting that such demonic intrusions would result in all kinds of licentiousness and lewd activities such as would violate various prohibitions, say the prohibitions of the Ten Commandments, which were just summarized earlier in chapter 1 by Paul, particularly as a concern that he had that, that these folks were too licentious, that there was a teaching that was lewd and and was creating all kinds of havoc and moral uh, uh, laxity. So all the more why I find myself surprised when it's not the demonic activity that leads to moral recklessness and freedom leading to debauchery and immorality, but an immoral restraint. Restrictions such as to lead here to what we might describe as moral prudishness or asceticism. The Bible never ceases to surprise me. I guess that's a good thing. But I think it's particularly these two surprises, an optimism that that makes room for this pretty negative description of what's happening in the life of the church, and then a kind of, of demonic activity that, while I would expect it to produce all kinds of moral laxity and lewdness, is here producing moral restraint and prudishness. 
But all of this together, the surprises, give us a window into what we should expect in this era. In this time that we live under the ascension ministry of Christ. And so let's talk about it because what we want to talk about is our expectations about the coming of the kingdom of God and especially applied to our liberty of conscience. Let's pray. So Father, come now, we pray, and speak to your people. I know you love them. I know you see us even as sheep, often wayward without a shepherd when we separate ourselves from you and your voice. And so, Father, call us back. Help us to hear and understand your word to us today. We pray for that miracle of illumination that's by your spirit working it into our hearts, received by grace through faith alone. We pray, amen. Well, first let's talk about these two surprises. The first surprise I mentioned was this optimism alongside of such horrid descriptions of the church. Now, to be sure, we have in the New Testament an extraordinarily optimistic prognosis of the coming of the kingdom of God. This optimistic outlook concerning the coming of the kingdom of God is is particularly linked to the description of Christ's ascension. For when we think of Christ and his ascended ministry, we think of someone who is now seated on a throne, Lord of all other minor lords on earth. We think of someone with great power, a power that is, that is readily dispensed upon us and in this world by the Holy Spirit. We think of a great illuminating era, an era where people would be enlightened and, and descriptions are just apocalyptic even as to how this enlightenment will create prophets out of the whole world almost. Where daughters and sons will be prophesying, witnessing to this great illumination The greater works that Christ talks about in John 14, where in anticipation of his ascension ministry, he told them that there were many and greater works that he was expecting during this era of life that we live in. The great expansion of the kingdom of God is all the more optimistic as we see it in Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you. And you will be my witnesses in in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Wow. The expansion of the kingdom. Unqualified. And then, of course, this unsurpassing power of the apostolic church. The church which is described in the New Testament as the very epicenter of this optimism. This epicenter of the kingdom of God. We think of Matthew 16, how upon the apostolic confession, are given the keys, that is, that which opens up the kingdom of God, binding and loosing on earth what is from the power of heaven itself. Even knowing and being told that that what is happening here, the gates of hell, will not prevail against her. Pretty optimistic, isn't it? And here we have this idea of the church in complement to what Christ had taught the apostles, described as a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so we cannot forget. We cannot forget. It's perhaps one of the great sins of, of our generation, and particularly within our class, that we have an under-realized expectation of the coming of the kingdom of God. Those of us who like to perhaps find comfort in pointing out 
the uh, extravagancies, let's say, of those who hold to the spirit-filled life, those who are quick to condemn churches, perhaps, who are unleashed by their confidence in the Holy Spirit, people who have a sense of boldness to go out into the city and, and to witness and proclaim the gospel. We, let's be honest, some of us at least, we kind of chafe at that kind of optimism as somehow maybe a little bit, you know, off kilter. Clearly, we may have it wrong, at least in some parts here. To be sure, we're going to be concerned about uh, regulating that optimism so that it's, it's an optimism derived from the Scripture and the Scripture's teaching and, and all of that kind of thing. But, but we cannot start this sermon without remembering that there is in the New Testament an extraordinary optimism of the coming of the kingdom of God, an optimism that turned the world upside down, beginning in chapter 1 of Acts. That is to say, an intrusion of the kingdom of God that disrupted the kingdoms of this world in a way that, that made for conversions and life transformations. There is nothing that I could say today or should say today that should in any way quench that optimism. An optimism that ought rightly to make us bold and witness. To make us pray with a sense of boldness and expectation in prayer. A kind of optimism that is proven to be true if anyone would take the moment to reflect on what has happened in the world since the first century and the ascension of Christ. That being said, we should expect great opposition. And that's the second point here. Great opposition, that is, against the gates of hell shall not prevail, but the assumption is there's going to be a opposition against the gates, if you will. I mean, the situation in Ephesus is described as that which would be normative in this era. Now, that's important. What I mean by normative is the expectation. We see this in the long side of the optimism always throughout the the Gospels. Christ is, is warning the disciples that in the age which is to come, that is the age after his ascension into heaven, awaiting the return of heaven to earth, that age will be fraught with opposition and trial. We read this, of course, in our passage in 1 Timothy 1.3 earlier, how it was in Ephesus that as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrines as from the apostolic. Already in the first century, we hadn't gotten beyond the apostles and the church is already being corrupted with false teaching an opposition to the kingdom of God that came from within the church, not even outwardly at all. A church being tempted to depart, that is, from the apostolic truth. We see in 1 Timothy 1, 6 and following how certain persons, by swerving from these truths, had wandered away, departed, that is, from the truth of the kingdom of God. How they... they, made many vain, that is, wrong-focused, uh, if you will, discussions and, and desiring to be teachers of the law, then it says that they didn't understand what they were talking about. 
These were unqualified, unvetted, self-appointed pastors and preachers, perhaps even with good intentions that are now being associated later in chapter 4 with demonic intrusion. Result, we're told in Timothy, is that many have made shipwreck, shipwreck of their faith. A common metaphor in that day, of course, given their, their way of transportation and their familiarity with, with ships that wreck. Today it'd be like saying a hurricane of their faith, if you will. Thinking of the tragedy that took place and the visual that took place there in our minds this week. Depicting that there's many a, a demonic activity that wreaks havoc upon the geography of the church of Jesus Christ. To be warned of such things. I mean, there's a reality check here, isn't there? It begs the question, why, given the optimism concerning the coming of the kingdom of God and the present redemptive era under Christ's ascension, and with a church described as a pillar and butchers of the truth, how could such things be? I mean, today, we must ask that question. If you're here and you haven't, then I'm wondering where you're, who and where you're living. I mean, we hear daily child molestations within the church. Financial corruptions. Yes, a liberalism that leads to a moral licentiousness that departs from the fundamental Christian doctrines on the one hand, and a fundamentalistic legalism that leads to condemnation and, and the lack of grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, there's opposition. Or we think of the benign church. That church which becomes powerless churches that that no longer turn the world upside down in their complicity to, to make themselves loved by the world. And therefore very subtly becoming not of this world to being of this world. Churches that take the care of power and prestige and popularity by keeping themselves, quote, civil in the eyes of our world which is to say not to be heretics of our cultural norms. Yes, we see all of that. And we wonder, what of this optimism? And the answer is given to us in our passage quite clearly. How and where does all this come from? Why should this be part of our expectations? Well, Paul says it this way. Now going to our passage, the Spirit expressly says that In the latter days, that is the days between Christ's ascension and his return, the present era, it says many will depart, that is to withdraw from the faith. This faith, he says, a definitive faith passed down by the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone according to Ephesians 2. This this faith, how? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. And the teachings of demons, through their insincerity, that is, the hypocrisy of pretending to be of Christ, when in fact their teaching and their lives betray them as being hypocrites in relationship to those teachings, contrary to the teachings, in other words. Their insincerity, they're described as liars, that is, pseudo-words in the Greek, of giving pseudo-words, false words, false teachings, in other words. And those whose consciences are seared or branded, 
hardened hearts, not teachable, bold in their teachings, even if wrong. This is the same kind of line that Paul uses in his second epistle to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 1. But understand this. You know, this, it's incredible emphasis. Understand this. Don't be surprised that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And just read the book of Revelation. Contrary to what maybe you've heard, Revelation is a book about the present, about the present era, even if in light of the future destiny of the church. And if there's any one point to Revelation, it is that we're going to win, but oh my gosh, is it going to cost some blood. We're going to win, but man, is it going to be rough. There will be such monsters in apocalyptic terms that we face that we can hardly imagine. And yet, over and over, with the recapitulation of the, of the themes that go seven times in this apocalyptic genre, we're reminded that, that there will be an ultimate victory. The power of God is greater than the power of this world. But, but that's the point. It is a kingdom that will come as triumphant in a great contest. And so now we begin to see what we're to expect. We're to have a very optimistic kind of perspective on the coming of the kingdom of God and expect great and bold things, but they're all the more bolder. They're all the more incredible because there is opposition to it, and we should expect that as well. And yet at the end of the day, we should expect that the power that is within is greater than the power that is in this world, says John in his epistle. That we're to expect that that there will be the heaven-to-earth climax, as we all hope and pray. So how to reconcile this optimism with demonic intrusion? Again, coinciding then with this eschatological optimism is this eschatological realism that is concerning the last days, the eschaton. And Mark 13, for in these days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will and ever will be. Did you hear that? We're to expect in this age greater opposition than ever there has been since the creation of the world. Wow. That's intense. John 16, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. (laughs) What kind of peace is he talking about? It ain't going to be outward. It's not going to be the peace of leisure. It's not going to be the peace of, oh, boy, I'm I'm through. It's done. No. He says this, for in the world you will have great tribulation, but take heart. I will overcome the world. That's how we should expect the kingdom of God to come. Begs the question, what would experience to participate in it? It's a haunting question. Acts 14. We're, to explain, we're told how the souls were strengthened by the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. You see, I think we want to avoid the topic of demonology because, quite frankly, our eschatological expectations don't have room for it. Perhaps we become benign about this age. 
that is nice about it. We kind of get nice about it. Um, I wonder sometimes if the so-called gospel-centered movement, which we are part of and happily so, the gospel-centered way of life, but we should not think of the gospel as some kind of a movement that isn't in contest, where there isn't a struggle, where the operative word for living in the gospel is not leisure but perseverance. What does that look like? What decisions do we make when we're tempted to not persevere? Lots of haunting questions begin to emerge. You see, we tend to want to avoid the topic of demonology as somehow being grossly misrepresented in the Hollywood version. We kind of give ourselves an excuse. It's true. I don't think we learn anything about demonology from the horror films that you want to learn. Everything is wrong about those films. Quite the contrary, demonology comes from within more often than from without. Demonology focuses on on that which comes to us as sheep's, as if in sheep's clothing. Angels of light. Teachings that are attractive. And on it goes. So what's the issue? The first thing, how does it explain this this contrast of optimism with pessimism, if you will? Well, Well, first of all, we probably have a misunderstanding of our age and what to expect. Now I've addressed that. That the coming of the kingdom of God and all of its optimism is not, it's not around tribulation, but in spite of it, which is all the more revealing of the power of God and the ultimate destruction of all evil. But secondly, notice these churches and how they're described. They're described as withdrawing or waywardness. This church, the pillar and bulwark of the church, is not the church that Paul's describing. Quite the contrary. This church that Paul has been describing as the pillar and buttress of the truth, it's, it's exactly when they depart from the truth that they cease to be a buttress. And they become wayward and they become susceptible to demonic possession. And I don't mean demonic possession in the weirdo ways that you hear in the horror movies. I mean the infiltration, probably is a better word. It says some will depart, that is withdraw from the faith. This is key, you see. Christians susceptible to the devil are Christians who have withdrawn from the teachings of the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone. It is the most dangerous thing in the world. And throughout the New Testament, it's exactly that withdrawal from that hunger and thirst for the word of God that then leads to demonic intrusion in our lives. That is so important for you to hear. You see, he indicates that the true source of their teaching is demonic, deceitful spirits, he says, and teachings of demons. It's interesting how this is similarly applied in James chapter 3. This is not like the wisdom that comes down from above, from heaven, James says, but it is earthly unspiritual, demonic about those who, and he's talking about those who would slander and, and speak false truths. How would, they, how would we know their faults? Many, many, uh, a couple of months ago, we talked about it, that in Timothy. Uh, Paul had earlier described how it is that, 
that there is a prophesying, but a kind of prophesying that is not tested against the authorized teachings of Christ through the apostles. You may not think it's a big deal, but often you will hear us describe the church as, quote, the apostolic church, end quote. What we're talking about and what theologians mean by that term is is that church that is not unorganized and willy-nilly and everyone doing what's right in their own eyes kind of movements. He's talking about a church that is very diligent and careful to test the spirits, says John. To test the spirits. The spirit that I feel within me that, that believes itself to be prophesying. The spirit that I hear others spewing and speaking and an emotional rant after some good music. The kind of spirits that we should be testing to discern if they are apostolic. Why? Because Jesus said about that church, that church against which the gates of hell will not prevail, that it is a church built on the rock of apostolic confession, beginning with Peter. And that rock of confession is the very rock of the foundation which is described by Paul in Ephesians about which this book in Timothy is concerned. A rock that we know is described as is built upon a foundation, a, a strong foundation of apostolic teaching with Christ as a cornerstone, end quote. And so we want here to understand and remember what's going on in this thing. The true church is the apostolic church which is then the pillar and bulwark of the church, and which then we can have such great optimism. You know, it might feel like a waste of time to catechize your kids. In this day and age where there's so many other institutions who with their great spires compete against your time and loyalty, and on the surface it looks like these are the institutions which are powerful and great, which are going to lead to abundant life in your children's lives and ours. There was no difference from this day and that day. In Ephesians' day, there were great uh, uh, tributes to the idolatries of the world. To be a heretic in their day was to be a Christian. It feels more like that today. And so you must hear what's happening here. This incredible reality of the kingdom of God coming into this world today, both optimistic but realistic. In the emergence and through the portal of, an, of, a wayward, of a wayward church. Wayward churches, of course, then begin with wayward teachings. Again, through the insincerity or the hypocritical teachings. It's through those who teach pseudo-words in the Greek here. How would you know? It's those whose consciences are seared. That is not teachable, not subordinate to apostolic authority. Confusing their wills with the will of God revealed. That's the source of this demonic teachings. But that now helps us with my first surprise. Now are you surprised? Now do you expect there to be opposition and trial and tribulation? As according to Paul here, the Spirit has explicitly said, the Spirit speaking of that revealed in Scripture, according to Christ and the apostles. Well, We have a good expectation now, right? Check that one off. But we got this other surprise. The surprise that that speaks to the illustration that Paul uses. 
Now, again, this is perhaps the surprise that first alerted me. I mean, I was surprised, weren't you, that, that instead of here describing all kinds of debauchery and all kinds of licentiousness and all kinds of sins against God's law, a, a kind of lawlessness, that Paul here mentions, well, those who would forbid something, those who would abstain from something, forbidding marriage, that is, abstaining from certain foods. This is interesting. You see, conventional wisdom, demonic, is licentious. And let's be clear, there is much in Scripture to describe demonic teaching as licentious teaching. For instance, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Timothy 1.8, we know that he makes a case that the law is good. I quoted there, verse 8. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And he goes on to describe all sorts of lawful uses of the law there in the next paragraph. He goes literally through the second half of the Ten Commandments. And he goes through and he talks about the unlawfulness and, and the, the, the sin, if you will. You could describe it as demonic teaching that would teach you to be any less concerned for slander and evil talk. And on it goes. It's true that this kind of... Le- of, of, of um, lawlessness, if you will, is, is a part of what certainly can be evidence of demonic intrusion in the life of the church, of moral laxity. But notice there's also a kind of lawlessness that results in what we describe as asceticism. That is, perhaps similar to that which was happening in Colossians, it was probably happening here, This may have also been mixed in with a kind of over-realized eschatology that the end had just begun, coupled with a kind of hyper-spirit interest that that things of the spirit don't involve bodily pleasures, like sex, like foods. And so perhaps there's all there, but I don't want to get lost in that because there's something bigger here that I, I want us to think about. Here it's described as demonic that there's a certain kind of teaching that would take away your liberty of conscience. That is, the liberty that God gives you to enjoy all things that God has created, albeit, as it describes, regulated in its use by the Word of God. Regulated is, of course, carefully described here. But let me try to show you how he makes this argument. It's pretty profound. The argument goes in two parts. First of all, he alludes to the good things. Now, he's clearly alluding to Genesis. It's, it's repeated and elaborated several times that God created these things. And that which God has created ought to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. And so those who believe the gospel are freed from that kind of demonic teaching that would put us into slavery of a false kind of pietism. A pietism that had a false understanding of the coming of the kingdom of God that that distinguished spiritual from material. We call it asceticism. 
Those who believe the gospel are freed from certain food laws, for instance, according to Mark 7 and Acts 10. One reason for this is an appeal to this repeated motif again in Genesis 1, that everything created is good. That is, the very fact that God created something has an inherent value of goodness attached to it. Therefore, nothing is to be rejected in the, in, 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 except that which is an unlawful use of that good and, and, and uh, thing that God has given us. And it's interesting then that the second reason that he cites, the second reason appeals to the common fact that a benediction or thanksgiving always accomplished accompanied meals. Now, maybe you're in the practice of before you, you eat, you, you say your prayers, right? Well, that's an ancient tradition prescribed by the law of God even in, in Deuteronomy. The Talmud speaks of that greatly. It's a, it's a huge tradition. You see it all through, interestingly, in, in the Gospels and in, in the New Testament. In Luke 24, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it. He beatituded it and he broke it and he gave it to them. 1 Corinthians 10, 30, Paul makes this point as applied to this very topic. He says, I partake with thanksgiving. Why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? See, he made that case in Corinthians against eating foods, certain foods. And his point is, if I, under the law, am to give thanks for God's creation and my enjoyment of it, why then would I be prohibited from enjoying it? And that's his point in 1 Corinthians 10. And in Romans 14, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats and eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Since he gives thanks to God. So you see what Paul's doing is he's making a twofold argument. A kind of, of, of the very essence argument, if it's created, it's of God and it's good. As long as it's used lawfully, that is according to the word. And secondly, we have all kinds of laws in the Old Testament that tell us to be thankful and to give thanks when we eat, which is all the more reason we should eat, again, as regulated by the Word of God. Okay, I'm going to step back here. That's been a lot. Take a breath. But what's going on? Well, I pretty much write it out for you in your take-home, in your bulletin, but let me just read it for you, what I wrote. You see, our passage wants to remind us that while living in an opportune time, such as to justify and expect even greater things relative to Christian conversion and transformation, and we should, and we should act like it and pray like it, by the way, we should as well expect that the kingdom activity will be countered by demonic focus or or intrusion or forces. More likely than not, such forces will come from inside the Christian context through false Christian teaching, if then matched by outside forces through persecution. Perhaps, though, the most surprising aspect to our passage is the illustration of false teaching that Paul wants to highlight. Namely, that kind of demonic intrusion, if you will, of false teaching that can appear most pietistic and most, quote, spiritual but is in reality an affront to the liberty which Christ has purchased to believers under the gospel. Let me just summarize for you in closing something about this liberty. You know, Paul says it this way, for freedom, Christ has set you free. 
In 2 Corinthians 3, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Galatians 5, the freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Did you know that in our confession of faith that we subscribed to as a church 350 years ago, written by what you might describe as Puritans, that there's a whole chapter on liberty of conscience and freedom? True freedom, true liberty, which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel, consists in our freedom from the guilt of sin, freedom from the condemning wrath of God, from the curse of the moral law. That is the law which condemned us rather than pointed us to Jesus Christ where we can find the law fulfilled and by faith recede unto salvation. And they're being delivered from the present evil world. So this liberty which Christ purchased by his blood is precious. One great Puritan, John Owens, wrote a huge, thick, it might be the thickest book he wrote on the topic of Christian liberty. Now, that might rock you if you're checking out the Christian faith and you think of, well, the one thing that really holds me back is I'm just not sure I want to submit myself to this yoke of laws and rules and regulations. Well, well, good news. While there are going to be some rules and laws and regulations, they're not going to be the sort that puts you in submission to a thousand lords, but only one. And the very point of this is a liberty that is that is stood against that kind of false liberty that comes by those teachings that are contrary or even beside Christ. That is to say, in that same chapter, it goes on to say about liberty of conscience that God and God alone is the Lord of your conscience and has left it free from all doctrines and or commandments of men which are in any way, and this is the huge phrase here, we call it the regular principle of the church, which are in any way, it says, contrary to the word of God. Now, most Christians, if they describe themselves as Christians, even quote some false teaching kind of Christians, would certainly concede to that. I can't teach that which is against or contrary to the word of God. Though there are some movements that do, of course, in certain ways. But here it goes on to say, no, it's not just that. It's not just anything that is contrary to the word of God, but beside it. Did you know that, Christian? That by his blood, he set you free from living under the guilt and the conscience of the teachings of men. That you don't have to submit to teachings if their only source is from people. Now be careful, as you'll see, But it goes on to say, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience, that is a conscience that is committed to the liberty of conscience as to be under the exclusive lordship of Jesus Christ in my life. He says then to submit to those things just to be a man pleaser. He goes on to say, he doesn't say the man pleaser part, but that's why we would do it, right? To submit to such thing is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith an absolute and blind obedience, which is to destroy the liberty of conscience and reason also. There's many scriptures about this. James 4. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Romans 14. 
Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Romans 14 again, Acts 5, it goes on. But thirdly, about this liberty. Don't confuse true liberty as being liberated from slavish or slavish sin. It's all through the scripture that sin is described as a demonic intrusion of authority in our lives. That sin destroys. Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, etc., etc., Romans 6.20 says the same thing, for you were once slaves of sin. So when you think of the Christian life, clearly it's a life that wants to liberate us from all kinds of idols, all kinds of authorities other than Christ that regulate and govern our lives. Sin is a product of that idolatry in the scripture. That's the, that's the grid that the Bible diffuses idolatry of sin with. Is this idea of idolatry. Well, demonic forces then. We must distinguish between, quote, spirit-filled prophesying, the true spirit-filled, which is that prophesying which can be tested against the spirit words of Scripture. Remember, the Holy Spirit, according to Peter, is who wrote Scripture. And that's how they understand the spirit-filled life, to be governed or controlled by the scripture which the spirit has given to us versus some kind of emotionalism or populist sort of authority. We want to distinguish that kind of prophecy from that populist authority. Two, we want to distinguish true godliness from false pietism. We, want to, we don't want to confuse, and I speak here to elders especially, but we don't want to confuse mannerisms and proceduralisms that might have passed down to us from of old with true apostolic principles necessarily. They may be procedures and manners of doing things in worship and in our government and in all the sort of ways that we do things, but we must never lose sight that these are not commanded of Scripture. These are inferred from Scripture given a given context, like we must do in every context. We must contextualize the apostolic teaching. But I would say so much harm has been done to the church over the years. When in our laxity, we we fail to really understand the principles from Scripture. And it's a much easier, much more mindless way just to follow the rules that have been passed down for how you do things. I see that rise in my denomination, I'm afraid, sometimes. We confuse, that is, these old manners or measures with the old teachings of the apostolic teachings. We confuse conventionalism with biblicalism. This is what we saw in the days of John the Baptist. He, he came and he didn't just quite look like the conventional prophet. And Jesus begins to mock the Pharisees and he says, you know, what, what would you ever accept in a prophet? He says he came you know, wearing sackcloth and ashes and you called him demon-possessed. I come eating with the sinners and you call me a glutton. You see, what would it take to reach the streets of New Haven today? What kind of manners? What kind of clothes? What kind of talk? What kind of a person? I wonder, do we have a broad enough understanding of the apostolic teachings that we could then 
allow for a kind of unconventional church or an unconventional prophet in our city or in the world. These are all things which I want to encourage you to take heart in. That if you're losing confidence in the church, well, maybe you're just losing confidence in the unorganized church. Surprise you? I mean that church which is intentional about organizing itself upon the apostolic foundation and the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And so as we come to the table here, let me just remind you. Here's a table that by his blood reminds us of a great optimism. That the same table which died and suffered and was under great tribulation as we who follow after him will be, that it's the same table that wants to remember that we do this until he comes back. We remember that he died and was raised on the third day and ascended into heaven. And so I would encourage you as we come to this table to persevere in your faith and do so boldly, believing in the power of Christ and yet realistic about the opposition that you might face, both from within and from without. And do not lose heart. Keep fighting the fight. I pray, God, we will. Amen.